If we could, could we all stand at the reading of God's word this morning? Beginning at verse 25 in chapter 2 of Philippians, it says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow Upon sorrow. There, therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you so much for who you are. Father, you are perfect in absolutely every single way. I just thank you for this opportunity today. Thank you for this incredible church family. I pray that you bless this uh, church family, Father. I just want to thank you for their hospitality towards me and really their love for you, Father. I, I pray that you uh, be with us here in this service, that everything that is said and done brings honor and glory to you, Father. I pray that I minimize myself and and just make much of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I want to thank you so much for everything you have done for us through Christ. Sending him to die on the cross of Calvary for the sins of mankind. Father, we know that he was buried, but we also know that he rose again on the third day, securing our eternal life for all who trust in him. And all these things I pray in his name. Amen. If there is one thing I would like to get across today, my sermon in a sentence, if you would, Brother Rich, exemplifying Christ-likeness is not for the quote-unquote elite Christians, but for every Christian. So exemplifying Christ-likeness is not for the quote-unquote elite Christians, but for every Christian. I ask you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 2, and I'm sure that this uh, small epistle is very familiar to many of you. I want to take some time just in the background here. But we know from the Bible that the founding of the church at Philippi is in Acts 16. And we know from the Bible that the city of Philippi became the place where the Apostle Paul planted the first church in Europe, which is in the city of Macedonia. And it's interesting, to say the least, to see how the Apostle Paul, quote, bloom where he planted, so to speak. And if you have time this afternoon, I would encourage you to go back and read Acts chapter 16 if you haven't. And it's time there to see the accounts of those he reached for Christ. And we also know that he was later imprisoned in Rome, which is where it's presumed that he's writing this letter from. He writes the church to thank them for a financial offering, but also to let them know that he is overflowing. Catch this. He is writing from a jail cell, but he is writing to also let them know that he's overflowing with spiritual joy. That's amazing to me. I don't know about you, but the book of Philippians has become known as the epistle of joy because the words joy, rejoice, rejoice, and rejoicing have been 
used or are used interchangeably at least 16 times in four chapters. And the Apostle Paul also makes a lot of references to the mind or how Christians should think. And one profound example of this, and I don't have this for you, Brother Mark, so that's not your fault. That's on me. He says in verse uh, 12, really through 18 of chapter 1, he makes this statement, and you don't have to turn there. From the jail cell, surrounded by the Praetorian Guard, he says, Brethren, I want you to know that all these things have worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. Wow. What a perspective. So he spends this entire first chapter with a priority to explain, and that priority is that the glory of Christ, whether in life or in death, was his singular focus. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the famous verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he goes on in chapter 2, he tells them the importance of being unified, and he gives several patterns so he says in the first few verses there that the way that you achieve unity is through humility, which is a byproduct of spiritual mindedness. And then in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2, he gives the greatest example that can be given, and that's the example of Christ's humility and his exaltation, right? We know that Christ is the perfect man in every single way. We know that he is the perfect example for us. However, Jesus is no longer physically here. And it's almost as if the Apostle Paul realized that they needed examples that were human, just like they were. So he lists himself in chapter 2, in verses 17 and 18. And then he lists Timothy in verses 19 through 24. And then we come... To a man that is rather obscure. Maybe you have heard of him. Maybe you haven't heard of him. But his name is Epaphroditus. And it's almost as if the Apostle Paul assumes people will say, Well, Christ was perfect, so I know that I can't follow his example. Or that even if he urges them to follow his example and he goes on to do so in the next chapter, that people would say, but you're the Apostle Paul and I'm not an apostle, so therefore I can't do that. I can't be exactly like you, which he was always pointing to Christ, but I hope you see what I'm saying. And then there's Timothy, who is Paul's son in the faith, his protege, who we know is very gifted, right? Paul speaks so highly of Timothy, so even then, maybe someone would be intimidating trying to follow that model or trying to live up to Timothy. So he lists a common man, a man of their own company, who exemplifies all the things that the Apostle Paul has mentioned already, and his name is Epaphroditus. Oh, I've come to love this man. And if you don't know much about Epaphroditus, I want to share some things. And if you know all there is to know about Epaphroditus, then amen. Let's look at him. But in chapter 2, he, he lists all these things that should be done by Christians. And these are up there for you. But if we were to ask ourselves, who does nothing by selfish ambition, thinks of others as more important than themselves, who looks out for the interests of others? Right? We see that one. Who has a submissive mind like Christ? That one's also there in verse 5. 
Who works out their own salvation with fear and trembling? That one's there too. Who does all things without complaining and disputing? Mm. If you can't say amen, you got to say oh me. <laughs> Who is a blameless child of God without fault? That doesn't mean without sin. Without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We don't live in a crooked and perverse generation, do we? Mm. Who shines as a bright light in the midst of a dark world? Who holds fast to the word of life? I would submit to you that there is a man named Epaphroditus that is a common man. That is not a great hero of the faith mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. He's not an apostle, right? He is what we would consider to be an ordinary individual. And so lest anyone come away thinking, well, I understand why, why you're here, but I could never reach people, or I could never do fill in the blank, I want to show you this guy, because if God can use Epaphroditus, then he can use me. And if God can use Epaphroditus, then he can use you, right? So Epaphroditus, it says here, verse 25, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. And this man has a common name which comes from the name Epaphrodite, which is the name of a Greek goddess in Greek mythology. And there are those who have different interpretations of what his name means, but we know that he has a pagan background. And for those of you who know, or maybe you don't, the shortened version of the name would be Epaphras. Right? And there are references to another individual throughout the scriptures named Epaphras. And some believe it is the same individual, but I personally think the weight of scholarship tilts to the other end of the spectrum. I agree with the man who put it this way. He said, any identification with the Epaphras of Colossians 1.7, 4.12, and Philemon 23 is to say the least extremely precarious. It is hardly likely that one who is a native Colossian would be a resident and chosen messenger of Philippi. Right? And if you're like, what are you talking about? What's your point? The point is this. We don't really know much at all about the individual. But God can take anyone he chooses out of the background and bring them into the forefront. And he does that pretty often. Right? Amen. You think of blind Bartimaeus. That's an example that came to me. There are two blind beggars sitting on a road, on the road to Jericho, and Jesus is coming by, and they ask, what is going on? And one individual says, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. But this blind man could see. And this blind man and his companion, they shouted, oh, thou son of David. Right? They knew who Jesus was. They said, have mercy on me. We don't know anything about these two individuals, but they knew who Jesus was. There was an entire crowd of people who didn't really understand that Jesus was the Messiah. But these two men, though they were blind, they could see that Jesus was the Messiah. 3 John chapter 1, verse 12. There's a man named Demetrius. And there is one sentence written about Demetrius. And really, it's in the context of a man named Diotrephes. 
And John says, don't be like Diotrephes. Be like Demetrius, who has a good testimony. We don't know much about him, but God knows. And there may be an individual here that feels that way today. Well, God doesn't know anything about me, or God doesn't care about me. I'm a nobody. Friends, that's not true. God doesn't make mistakes, right? The Bible says that God knows the very number of hairs on our head. And you can check me out, Luke 12 and verse 7. You may think that God doesn't care about you, that God's got other things going, but that's untrue. You may think that God can't save you because of your background or past, but that's also untrue. And we know that because we can look to Calvary. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul, it's interesting to me. You might hear me say that a lot. I get that from my pastor. Every time he says, I find this interesting, I listen up. And now that I say that, you're going to think I'm going to blow your mind, but really I'm not. So <laughs> I teed that up poorly, but here we go. The Apostle Paul notes the fellowship that the church had in the gospel in the first chapter. He says that in verse 5 of chapter 1. And we do know the salvation stories of a few. There's a Philippian jailer, for example, that gets saved. We know that. But we don't know the story of Epaphroditus. But I want you to see what he goes on to say about Epaphroditus before he says anything else. My brother. Amen. Amen. We might just pass over that. But he says, Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker. And fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. So he says, my brother, the person that I have a spiritual bond with in Christ. You see, at some point, Epaphroditus saw himself as we all should see ourselves, and that's sinners in need of a Savior. We don't know when it was, but we know that it happened because he said, he is my brother, right? I want you to know that all have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. And that includes me. See, we have all missed the mark, is what sin means. We've all missed the mark of God's glory, which is that God is perfect in every single way. And the only person to ever live a sinless life is the spotless Lamb of God who gave his life on the cross of Calvary for the sins of mankind. The Bible says, you're going to hear me say that a lot. Don't get it confused with Brother Justin thinks. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him, that's Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's that ministry of reconciliation the Bible talks about. So if anyone turns from their sins and places their trust in, in Christ for salvation, he will save them and reconcile them back to God the Father through himself. The Bible says in Romans 10, verses 9 through 11, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The Bible says whoever. That that included Epaphroditus, that included me, and that includes you, if you call on the name of the Lord. I want you to see this. It doesn't say that they had all things in common, right? He started the, the sentence very specifically. He says, Epaphroditus is my brother. You'd be like, and you're probably thinking, brother, move on. But it doesn't say they had all things in common, but they did have the most important thing in common. Okay? They had that fellowship in the gospel. He says also, my fellow worker. Don't you love people who aren't afraid to come alongside you and roll their sleeves up? And do some hard work. And sometimes it seems like that's the one thing people don't want to do is hard work. But not this man. And the Apostle Paul also was not too proud or too great to go without asking for help. He uses the same phrase for a number of different people throughout his letters. Fellow worker. The Apostle Paul didn't do it all by himself. Listen to this one. Fellow soldier. Hmm. I love that. I'm having fun. I hope you guys are. They were really, quote unquote, in the trenches together, right? Spiritual warfare going on. Really? They were fighting the good fight of the faith together. Amen. That's what it takes. And some of you might understand this term. When I was thinking about it, you know, I thought of it this way, that they were foxhole friends, right? I've got, my, I've got your back, and you've got my back, and if the enemy's going to come to me, they've got to get through you, and vice versa, right? These guys had each other's backs. That's how it should be. You see, the Apostle Paul was in a tight situation, and there was a possibility that he was facing death, which is why he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, because he knew it was a possibility. He was confident that he wouldn't die, right, but that he would stay and be able to help the church produced more spiritual fruit, but the situation was hostile, and so if they're hostile against the Apostle Paul, then it logically follows that they would be hostile against his companions, and Epaphroditus wasn't scared. Amen. So what? So be bold in the face of danger, especially when it comes to contending for the faith. The Philippian jailer got saved because when everything went down that went down, he didn't run to all of his other jailer friends and say, hey, do you know the, the, the answer to eternal life, right? Paul and Silas were in stocks, but they were praising God. And when trouble came, guess where the jailer went to? They went to Paul and Silas, right? That's what I'm getting at. So we don't know whether the man ran toward the danger, or if he calculated his his risk first. But nevertheless, when the time came to go, his attitude was like others in the Bible who literally said, Here I am, Lord, send me. Amen. He says, But your messenger. So very simply, he was sent out by the church at Philippi. He was not directly commissioned by the Lord in the sense that the other apostles were. The one who ministered to my need. He was literally there to meet the apostles' needs, which speaks of his humility. 
You didn't think I'd get through that that fast, did you? But we see that he's also a compassionate man. Since he was longing for you all, verse 26, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So he was continually longing to be with his brothers and sisters in Philippi. And when they had gotten news that he was sick, he wasn't distressed that he was sick. That's not where his concern was at. His concern was that they were overly concerned about his condition. So even in his sickness, he was not focused on himself. He was focused on his brothers and sisters. That's amazing. He wanted to be back home with them, sure, but not because he was homesick by itself and wanted to check out early. The Bible says he was distressed. The same word is used in Matthew 26, 37, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a man of deep, deep compassion for other people. The kind of compassion that the Apostle Paul uses himself at the beginning of the letter when he says, I long to be with you all. I long for you all. Everything in him wanted to physically be there with them so that he could assure them that he was okay. Wow, that's the practical outworking of putting others before yourself. Thinking of others as more important than yourself. Look at that. We see that he's a committed man. Verse 27, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He didn't say, hey, man, I know you're upset, but get it together. (laughs) That's not what he said. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, he was committed. You know, at seminary, sometimes we sit around and talk about things that that we can't know. (laughs) And this would be one of those ones. Well, what do you think his sickness was? Well, I think, right, we don't know what his sickness was. But what interests me the most about this verse is that there's no boast of human strength. There's no boast of human cunning, right? I'm sure you all know somebody that just never gets sick, right? Like never goes to the doctor unless they're actually about to die, and when they actually get sick, they don't take anything, don't do anything for it, and they just tough it out, and you're just like, yep, I knew it, he's tough, he's gonna be fine, right? There's no boast of any of that. There's no boast of, well, he was just smart enough so he knew exactly what to do in that situation, therefore that's why he was fine. Nope. The most interesting part to me, but God had mercy on him. And on me also. You know, the Bible says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And sometimes I have the audacity to think that I'm in control of the grander scheme of things. I don't know about you. But I said that to say this, that Epaphroditus did not go home saying, listen to what I have done for God. Epaphroditus went home saying, listen to what God has done for me. God has had mercy on me. Amen. So what blind Bartimaeus cried out, 
Oh, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Can we have a conference on that? Can we, <laughs> can we do a Bible conference on God's mercy? <laughs> we don't preach ourselves. We don't. God has had mercy. That's what the Apostle Paul says about God being able to allow him to minister at all in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Right before God, or right before he says, I am the worst of all sinners in 1 Timothy 1, <laughs> he says, God has counted me faithful putting me into the ministry and he has been merciful on me. Paul didn't say, I get to serve God because I'm the smartest guy you know. <laughs> Going on. It says, therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. And they had sent a gift, and it's not that they... Couldn't supply anything else. It's just that Epaphroditus was physically able to be there. That wasn't a knock on the church. You know, the Apostle Paul knew, as I said, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. However, it still would have caused him immense grief if Epaphroditus had passed. And once again, you see that, that heart for people, that love of relationship, that deep connection there. But he says that we need to hold such men in esteem. And when I think about that, it causes me to think about the reasons why we look up to the people in the culture today. <laughs> a lot of times, the reason why we look up to people in the culture is because they have a certain status, or they're famous, or they have a certain amount of money, or any number of things. But the Apostle Paul doesn't focus on material things at all. He says, we should esteem those who have godly character, godly compassion, and godly commitments. Here's another biblical example. Epaphroditus' life is an outworking of the principle that Jesus gives us in Matthew 16, 24 through 26. And if you can hang with me, I'm almost done. And everybody said, Amen. But Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Yeah, he was calculating. <laughs> he counted the cost. There's another one. There's another biblical example. What does it mean to count the cost? What's your point? I think there's a great irony that has to be confronted here when we consider the biblical text in front of us. A lot of people think that because they are not as spiritual as so-and-so Bible hero, and I'm not undersell underselling the Bible heroes, right? But a lot of people think that because they're not as spiritual as so-and-so Bible hero, then they should leave the work to the professionals, right? 
and they'll stay sidelined. When in actual fact, many of those who have greatly influenced me for Christ have not been who I would consider to be professionals. Right? Not many of them have. But not all of them. But the thing I know about those people is that they were people who loved God. Right? I would say that they were commendable people. That they had godly compassion for others. Which is why they cared about me. I, uh, man, if I have time, I'll tell you about the guy who used to drive the van for me. Man, that guy loves me to this day. And these people were committed to the things of God. And I'm sure if you have the time or if you're thinking now that you can think of people who have influenced you in the same way. And now all of a sudden, when we think of how to reach the next generation, the impossible seems possible. Right? I said all that to say this, and you're probably thinking, don't do that again. But now, when we think about it in those terms, how to reach the next generation, the impossible seems possible. Not because if Epaphroditus can do that, then I can too, or I can't too. But rather, if God can use Epaphroditus, then God can use me. And I'd like to ask uh, the musicians to come forward. When we're back where we started. Exemplifying Christ-likeness is not for those who we would consider to be elite Christians. Exemplifying Christ-likeness is for every Christian. 